This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from today, the 2nd of June. And on the programme today, we discussed children and car seats because despite a law mandating the wearing of seatbelts in the UAE coming into force in 2017, more than a third of parents say they don't even own a suitable seat for their baby. We found out the details of that research with Thomas Edelman, the founder of Road Safety UAE. We also discussed the best way to encourage parents to buckle up. That was with branding expert Anthony Miles, who's the managing director of Bond. Meanwhile, children are being enlisted as climate ambassadors by the team at COP28 so they can learn what it's like to be a negotiator. We heard more about how the programme is going to work at Expo City Dubai with teacher Lily Jackson from the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai and several of her pupils. We also heard about another special programme being launched at Expo City Dubai. It's the Connecting Minds Book Club, and it was launched in partnership with the Emirates Literature Foundation this week with Booker Prize winning author Ben Oakry. Now, he's unveiled two new books for adults and children, and they're both focused on climate change. Producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with him to find out more about the programme. And if you're wondering what to do with the children these hot summer months, I have good news for you because the Expo City Dubai team have come up with a massive programme of events. We caught up with one of their VPs, Samaya Al-Ali, to find out more about it. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the programme. Welcome specifically to your home of learning for the next two hours. Uh, it is our chance to put our eye on education. Uh, it's our special programme. We do it every Friday from 11 until 1 and we're sponsored by the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Now, it is our chance to look at all the top education headlines crossing our desks, at least over the last few days. We've just started our GL exams for the kids at school. So I've got one eye on exam stress, but I think that story is really going to get going as we go further into the GCSEs and A-levels. But then shortly after that, we've got the school holidays and they seem to be coming alarmingly quickly. I think we've only got like a month to go or five weeks to go. Uh, And oddly enough, one of our top stories on the programme this hour is that a group of principal teachers in the UAE have actually warned of the risks of summer regression. This is a topic that producer Jennifer Crichton's been looking into. What's the deal? Well, firstly, just for your benefit, the holidays are actually now this month. No, I saw sort of. Sort you've of. Got the Eid yes. break. Yeah. But I'm still holding fast to the idea that they're going to go back for that first week of July. Yes. Am that's I foolish? True. Am no, I foolhardy? No, you're right. Some children are breaking up in June, but ours may still go Please back in July. Stay can... till the seventh of July. Please. I got every <laughs> finger crossed. And that would give us what, five weeks? Five weeks. But yes. as you were saying, we kind of thought that by the time we got to that point, we'd have done our bit on the revision front. We'd have gotten through the times tables and the GLs and the GCSEs and everything else and we could kick back a bit, at the very least stop arguing about revision hours. But it seems now that there is indeed no rest for parents because we're being warned to guard against what school heads are calling the summer slide. Now, this is a regression or a learning loss that they say can be increasingly pronounced the further up the school years we go. So this is actually even more pressing for those parents who've had to navigate the GCSE A-level end of the scale. Now, teachers say that while there's no need to engage our kids in formal education over the two months break, they've advised that we do need to ensure that they are reading, drawing, writing or taking part in other engaging activities which remain a part of their day-to-day routine over the summer to make sure that they return for the next academic year ready to learn. That just makes me feel, on this Friday, slightly flat, I have to say. I have to say it was not an enthusiastic face yeah, over the desk there. I can't, I can't imagine having to not just feed and clothe them and, and wake up all hours <laughs> and entertain them, but I'm also supposed to be semi-educating them over that summer break while, and, oh, and, while holding down a job. And Minecraft doesn't count. 
I think it does. I think it does. They didn't specifically say it doesn't count, did they? Yeah, yeah. They sort. Of, I, I like the fact that, that basically on this topic we've lost the ability to use words because we're just so hopeful that they might just stay in school for as long as possible. But yeah, it's fair enough. I suppose you do have to keep things ticking over. Oddly enough, my son will have to take. Um, an English school exam when he comes back in the autumn. So, uh, and then also, if you want to get into Dubai College, you have to take an exam in November, October, November as well. So, we probably will keep him working over the summer. But I think I'm going to hire help. I don't think I can do it myself. Me trying to get my children to study is, uh, I mean, it's, it, it quickly descends into shouting and consequences and removal of screens and misery on both sides. And as we all know, being shouted at doesn't necessarily make any of us want to do things. And yet, as a parent, I, I'm the same. I try my best, but the, the level of patience by this point in the year is low. We're not made. There's a reason they go to teacher training college. It's because it doesn't come naturally. You I have to learn it. I always say as well, there's a reason why teachers are not allowed to teach their own children. You know, if you're a teacher and you work at the same school as your kids, you will not have your kids in your class. And that's for a reason. And my friends who are teachers tell me 30 of someone else's kids are easier than one of your own. And I am holding firm on that. That is encouraging. That is encouraging. So while we're on the subject, though, of those school holidays, uh, we've also spotted a story this week about a new employment initiative that sounds like a dream for working parents, such as you and I, who are currently worrying about that two-month break. That's right. So this is a new initiative from Amazon, and it's one that really piqued our interest because the digital giant's going to allow parents and grandparents, interestingly, who work in its warehouses, to choose to work in term to time only. The new contract will allow anyone with childcare responsibilities to take six weeks of holiday in summer, two weeks in spring and winter each, in order to accommodate school breaks. And the employer says it hopes it will encourage a greater number of parents back into the workplace. Okay, continuing with the holiday theme, because obviously uh, one of the ways that we keep our children entertained during the holidays is with a bit more screen time significantly more screen time probably (laughs) Uh, but now there are two new studies to further depress you because they suggest that it might be an even worse idea than previously thought Yes. Now, firstly, on a local level, parents across the Middle East are being warned of the risk of phone addiction among young people, with experts saying that they are seeing a rise in this region. Apparently, they're meeting teenagers who are spending as much as 12 hours a day on social media, keeping their phones by their bed, checking messages in the middle of the night, looking at likes at all hours and even losing significant sleep as a result of compulsive scrolling. Now, they're warning that these addiction levels are comparable to drug addictions. Meanwhile, a second study, and this one's global, and it involved 27,969 people aged from 18 to 24, so significant. It has suggested that the later a young person gets a mobile phone, the better their mental health will be in adulthood. Researchers found that 74% of female subjects who received their first smartphone at the age of six, which is incredibly young, experienced mental ill health, compared with 46% who didn't receive a phone until they turned 18. Now, Interestingly, the numbers were a great deal smaller for male subjects. The percentages there were lower across the board, but boys who got a phone at the age of six were 42% likely to suffer from mental ill health as adults compared to 36% of them if they got a phone as a teenager. That is definitely a topic to talk about a bit later on. That's really interesting indeed. Mm. And of course, uh, I'm very tempted now to ask everyone what what age they're giving a phone to their child. But we're going to save that for another day because I think we need to give it the scope it deserves. It's but a that huge is point. Very, very interesting indeed. OK, let's move on to some good news that you found from Sharjah now because a young designer has picked up a number of awards for his work inventing a robot doctor to help the UAE's elderly. This is a lovely story. Isn't it? It's adorable. So this is Ali who made Al-Lukhani and he's a 12-year-old pupil at Sharjah's American School of Creative Science. He said he developed the robot, Dr. Robot, to help reduce the need for regular doctor's visitors visits sorry for elderly patients he said it relies on the internet of things to provide medical consultations and round-the-clock patient monitoring i repeat he is 12 amazing i mean absolutely extraordinary and it can do a whole bunch can't it It's it's incredible it's reading their their vital signs. Yep, heart rate, blood pressure, temperature. And that data is then transmitted and stored securely and is accessible to doctors through, I quote, 
a dedicated website I built. I mean, they, do you know, when I was at the, um, I went to a media briefing this week for, for the, from the COP28 team. Yeah. And one of the, there were lots of influencers there from the region and, and from the country. And, and we were all sort of learning a little bit more about how we would be able to access information from the various uh, COP28, from yeah. the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment, also from the UAE Media Office. You know, all the different ways that we'd be able to, to get information from them. And one of the influencers that was there was... A, a young girl, I reckon she was 12, 12 to 14, and she spoke more eloquently on the microphone than any of us about her passion for the cause and how she's keen to get the message over to her, her friends and her contemporaries. And I have to say, I, I, a bit like this young chap, I, I was in, it was incredibly impressive. So Ali Humaid Al-Lugani, you are part of a slightly frightening generation of children who are growing into adults very, very quickly, very clever adults. Yes, it's it's quite extraordinary what the next generation appears to be capable of. It gives you a bit of hope, really, doesn't it? It does indeed. Now, a training centre for people with special needs in Dubai has received a donation of more than 100,000 dirhams to open a new classroom. You've got more details on this, haven't you? That's right. So it's going to be dedicated to supporting pupils with cerebral palsy, which is a disability caused by damage or abnormal development in the part of the brain that controls movement. This special classroom is opening at the Al-Nur Training Centre for persons with disabilities and it's received a 110,000 dirham donation from a Dubai company to open a classroom that will accommodate 15 to 30 pupils who need extra help in accessing their learning. Fantastic news. That is very good indeed. We'll be keeping an eye on all of those stories and more. Plus, we definitely want to have that conversation about mobile phones at some stage. But Jen, thank you for running through those stories for me. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. We are in the midst of our education special. It is Eye on Education. We host it every single week between 11 and 1 and we're going to turn our attention now to the school run and specifically road safety on the school run it's a hot topic for any of us who sit in traffic with their children in cars for hours every single day i am that person the school run seems to take longer and longer in the afternoons. Uh, needless to say, I have always had my children buckled up safely, but I have to admit that that's probably one of the reasons why I've been really surprised by some of the figures coming out from the latest research done by Road Safety UAE. They are exactly what they sound like. They're a campaign group here, based here in the country, and we've had them on the programme a fair amount of time. Often they're talking about bad driving, uh, but today they're talking about the use of car seats because despite Despite a law mandating the wearing of a seatbelt in the UAE coming into force in 2017, it turns out that about a third of parents do not own a proper car seat for their child. And those who do own one, about a third of them don't use it or don't always use it, at least. Now, earlier I spoke to Thomas Edelman, who's the founder of Road Safety UAE, because I basically wanted to get him to run through the numbers for me. Have a listen. This means everyone in the vehicle must be buckled up. And for children between the ages of zero to four, this means they have to be buckled up in proper child restraint systems and proper child seats. Now, what we did is um, we conducted three waves of uh, survey together with YouGov. And one wave was actually done before the introduction of the new seatbelt law. And two of these waves were conducted after the introduction of the holistic seatbelt law. Why? Because we wanted to see a change in behavior. Unfortunately, there is not a lot of change in behavior. So this means we see about a third of parents who say, yes, I have a child in the age bracket of zero to four, and I know it is the law, still about a third of those parents do not own child seats. And we also know the reasons why. Then we ask those parents who do say, yes, uh, we do own the proper child seat, so we asked them, do you always strap in your child? And again, about 30% uh, of respondents say, no, we don't do that. Okay, so for me, when I was growing up, I always had to have my seatbelt on. And obviously, there were a lot of seatbelt safety campaigns in the United Kingdom. So it's an absolute anathema to me why people wouldn't ask their children to buckle up. I, I, I simply don't understand it. It's, it's so deeply embedded in my culture. So why is it that people in the UAE aren't taking that 
simple safety measure. Well, asking parents for the reasons of non-ownership of child seats, number one is parents are confused. They don't know which child seat to choose. Is it forward-facing? Is it rear-facing? What about this isofix? So parents say, number one reason why I don't own a child seat is I don't know. Point number two is it's too expensive. The third point that comes is my children don't like to be strapped in. Maybe they don't like to be strapped in in the very beginning, but again, it's about instilling a habit. And I think there are many situations where we as parents, we just have to be parents and not friends. And sometimes we have to overrule the kids and we have to educate our children. So if the child says, hey, Papa, hey, Mama, I don't want to be strapped in, we have to overcome that. And um, there's just no excuse not how to own uh, a child seat for that argument. When we ask those parents who actually do have child seats, why don't you always buckle up your, your child? First mention there is, yeah, my child doesn't like to be strapped in. The second one is that people say, ah, you know what? It is just a short trip. And on short trips, it's not needed, which of course is not true. It is absolutely not realistic. And the third point is that respondents say, hey, look at me. I'm a safe driver. Everybody will be safe in my vehicle. You don't need a seatbelt. I don't need to always buckle in my, my child. So there is a lot of room for improvement. We have to educate the parents because ultimately it is the parents, nobody else. Now, strategically, we have, of course, a couple of options to educate parents. But the most important strategic approach would be to educate parents in the prenatal phase. So when there are parents to be, so we have great opportunities to collaborate with the healthcare system. We have great opportunities to work together uh, with hospitals in the prenatal care to educate parents. Because again, we know that parents say, uh, I don't know which child seat to use. And then hand in hand with that should go a mandatory newborn release policy. Like when my son was born in 1995 in Austria, I'm from Vienna, I had to show to the hospital staff the child seat, and only then I was allowed to discharge uh, Oliver and to bring Oliver home. And I think the same must be applied in the UAE, ideally governed by a law and, and by rules. In the absence of that, because this might take some time, on voluntary basis, I think every hospital would embrace the idea of having a discharge policy and procedures in place, because it's not only about the policy, which is a piece of paper, but we have to bring that to life. So how do we train the hospital staff? How do we train the nurses? How do we train the parents? What kind of information material do we have to have? What kind of car seat displays do we have to have in place? And doing that, we are calling on all stakeholders to come forward and collaborate with us. We are now in a very fortunate position that we just welcomed a new partner on our uh, CSR platform. It's a German uh, child seat company. They're called Cybex. And we're working very closely now with Abu Dhabi governmental agencies to bring that to life. Can I ask what age children are meant to be in car seat? I now have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they're pretty convinced that they don't need to be in car seat now. And I'm starting to weaken to that. When are you big enough to get out of the car seat? Well, actually, um, it's quite easy. You would have to look at your child and where the seatbelt runs. So if you have a very tall child and the seat belt runs safely under the neck, then your child is basically allowed to use a proper seat belt. In the phase between a child seat and no child seat at all, there's also the phase where we're talking about booster cushions and booster seats. And the main reason of these booster seats and booster cushions is to boost the height of the child so that the seat belt runs safely and under the neck of the kid. Because in the unfortunate case of a collision, children might be strangled and suffocated by the seat belt itself. Really interesting comments there from Thomas Edelman, the founder of Road Safety UAE, keeping me informed as to where I need to keep my children strapped in, but also giving us those really quite depressing figures there that state that children still aren't being buckled up. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Okay, so we're discussing Carsey 
seats on the programme today. Uh, and I imagine I'm speaking to lots of people who are currently stuck in traffic jams on the way to the school run. So it's quite a pertinent topic. Uh, it has emerged from the latest research that about a third of parents do not own a proper car seat for their children. And for those who do own one, about a third of parents say they don't always use them. So uh, we've, I've been asking uh, out to the public, I've been asking you, if you are someone who has uh, children, do you use a car seat? Why do you use one? If you don't use one, why do you not use one? Please do get in touch and join the conversation. 4001 or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 And I think it's fair to say that this is a triggering subject for a lot of people because I've had more messages in the last 10 minutes than I normally get on this radio show, it's fair to say. Uh, so, Matt, I'd thank you for your message. He says he's lived here for a decade. It's always concerned him about people not using car seats. I wonder whether there's a lack of confidence about how to set them up properly. And as a much, I offered my services to help people in my local community, but no one took me up on the offer, either because they were on already or it just wasn't on their agenda. I even considered buying seats just to give them out and to educate for free because ultimately one life saved pays for a horrible experience many times over. This person says we'd always own car seats and made it mandatory in our cars, uh, but my in-laws don't think it's necessary, especially if they all want to squeeze into one car and they will leave the car seats behind and this really frustrates me. That's interesting. Maybe it's a sort of generational thing. Fard has got in touch saying we have two cars in the family, both are equipped with car seats. Our six-year-old is always buckled up, but I do know people, even close family members, that do not. Keep the conversation going. Please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime... I wanted to get into the sort of nitty gritty of this topic because ultimately, if there are if there are a lot of people not using car seats and, and, and the safety benefits are just clear, like I'm not even really going to go into the statistics because it's obvious. How can people who don't think it's necessary be encouraged to buckle up their children? Now, in the past, successful campaigns in Europe have really worked wonders. So let's find out what has worked in the past and therefore what could work in the future. I'm joined in the studio by Anthony Miles. Now, he's a branding expert. He's the managing director of Bond. And I want to talk to you, Anthony, about the power of advertising. Great. great. (laughs) And the power of branding? Because I think that maybe car seats just haven't been branded right in this country. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating challenge. Um, I mean, obviously, the issue is not really about selling a product. It's about changing behaviour. So how do we actually get people to understand? As you said, there's a a clear uh, reason for doing it, but the behaviour change isn't happening. So how do we maybe use the tools of brand and communications and advertising to actually make that happen in a way that it hasn't happened before? So I think um, looking at the research that you were talking about earlier, um, obviously, the, you, you were saying there's about a third of people that don't use car seats regularly at the moment. So the first thing, obviously, like any project that we might do, is to look at that audience and target that audience. So obviously, we, we can't preach to the converted. There's 70% of people that do use car seats regularly. There's no there's not a great deal of point in sort of talking to those directly because they're already doing the thing that we want to do. So I think the first job is to really understand who those people are. What are the challenges they're facing? So obviously there's going to be a lot of frictions and reasons why they aren't doing the thing that they uh, that we would like them to do, that the law change requires them to do, uh, but they're not doing it. So understanding their world, their lives, the reasons that they have for not doing it, I think is uh, is, is clearly the first thing to do when you're uh, when you're sort of tackling a problem like this. It's interesting that you obviously you start with the research and Mm. and ultimately you go into that. Now, uh, Thomas Edelman from Road Safety UAE suggested that one of the reasons was cost. Another reason, so you actually have to go out and Mm. buy the car seat. The other one was a sort of lack of knowledge about what Mm. was the best type of seat to buy. And then the sort of third element was what I would call sort of overconfidence. (laughs) Because people just think that they're such good drivers that they just don't need them. It's very interesting because another thing to do is to look at the problem and try and turn it into little chunks that you can actually look at individually and not have to tackle the whole issue as a whole because that becomes either too big for people to understand or change their action. But if you turn it into something practical 
then it's more likely to happen. So, for example, I think the research that you were quoting, one of the things in there talked about that, I think, again, it's about a third of people said that they don't use car seats because it's such a short journey. So therefore, I don't need to. But I think, again, I think this is global uh, statistics that say that around a quarter of all car accidents happen within the first three minutes of leaving your house. So if there was a campaign around that specific issue, explaining that, then already you're kind of trying to take away those those points of, of kind of reasons why people are not doing the, the behavior we want, because you're actually sort of, you know, showing them why it's important. Oh, the thing I wanted to do is not put the seat in here, uh, use the seat on a short journey, but you know it's you have to because it's it's actually that's the moment when you're going to have the accident. Yeah, so you're really sort of focusing the message now. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly these these sort of road safety campaigns and car seat mm. campaigns have really worked very well in the past. Yes. I mean, I grew up with them in the United Kingdom. Yes. What was what was the secret to those campaigns' success? So I think there's a few different campaigns that, that have done things really well. And some are really campaigns, but some are maybe a bit bigger than that and talk about branding something. So a really interesting one was the phrase designated drivers. So obviously that's to do with um, sort of um, drink driving to make sure people don't do that. It was started, I think, in Sweden many years ago. But in the 1980s in the US... Um, there was a campaign and it was a partnership with lots of different studios, so TV and film studios, and they named it Designated Driver. So it was a name that they gave to this activity or this action. And then they introduced it into sitcoms, into films, and used it uh, in a way so it became normal. So people understood the phrase and then they thought it was a norm, a thing that people should do because it was introduced into the culture. So that's a beautiful way of branding and communicating something to move it from something that I don't want to do to something that everyone is doing, therefore I should also do it as well, which I think that's a great example of, of one way to do it. Another way is to make it memorable and fun. So I think one of the biggest campaigns of, of the last 10 years was the one called Dumb Ways to Die, which was an Australian campaign around rail safety, not road safety. But if anyone's ever seen that or heard the tune, it's an incredibly catchy tune. It's incredibly funny. I think I looked the other day, it had 280 million views on YouTube. And I think there's evidence to say that it actually had a, a benefit and an impact in the, in the sort of reduction in, in uh, accidents and incidents. So, you know, give it a name, uh, make it memorable, make it fun. I think these are the ways that you can actually, you know, build campaigns that work. The thing with uh, road safety or car seat safety is there's nothing fun or cool about it yes. so how would you how would you brand it to make it not fun or cool but but at least memorable and a norm yes i mean again that dumb ways to die is another way of looking at it it's like that's not a fun or cool thing but they they twisted the conversation to a way that made it interesting so maybe fun's not exactly the right word but another way to think about it was i know the research also talks about children not wanting to put the seat on so you could also think about again it's not communications it's a bit deeper than that how do you create something that could make the activity fun is there a game that we could invent that actually helps parents win that moment when they're struggling to get their three-year-old to put the put the car seat on that actually turns the activity into a game so for the child it becomes something that they want to do not just something that parents feel that they have to do that is very cool. That That's a very cool... I mean, the amount of times that I've literally shoved my two-year-old into the seat <laughs> and just buckled it up and acknowledged the fact that they're going to scream blue murder for the next three minutes, but I'm in a rush and they just need to be in the seat. Exactly. I mean, it's easier said than done, but I think it's a lovely idea that, that could be explored uh, to do that, yes. I mean, we've just heard there how Road Safety UAE have partnered with uh, Cybex, which is mm -hmm. a big car seat provider. Is there a way, for example, if the UAE government wanted to sort of jump on the bandwagon and, and encourage more people to, to buckle up, should they get involved? You know, are there sort of part partnership recommendations? Mm. How do governments normally manage to get these messages out? Well, I mean, some idea. I mean, even the, the examples I shared earlier, they were government-sponsored uh, programs in some way or public sector uh, uh, programs. So I think the communications is one angle to it. But there's other ways you can do things, and partnerships is also very interesting. So, you know, potentially... You know, what, when are the moments, for example, when someone might change their car? Well, that's obviously when you have a baby or when you start a family. So what if, you know, and again, I think the research was saying one of the reasons people don't um, buy the seats is because they feel they're too expensive. And I think we've all felt that they, they can be a significant Very, investment uh, yeah. to get to get these things, especially if you have multiple children. So, so what if... Uh, 
when you're buying a car, there was some deal partnership between the, the actual car dealers, the secondhand uh, marketplaces that gave you the seat along with the car. I mean, then you don't even notice the cost of the seat because compared to the cost of a car, it's, it's almost nothing. Yes. Yeah. And another way, another partnership, maybe obviously another um, sort of moment is when you're actually in the hospital giving birth. And I know there was something around how this kind of, you know, the, the, the transition to people having a family. What if it was some kind of partnership with health insurance providers, etc., etc., where you could actually again provide the seats as part of something else? So the seat gets absorbed into some other payment or some other uh, cost that doesn't feel quite so scary to uh, to to sort of out outlay. Really interesting ideas, and it definitely you know you it, it, it's very encouraging actually because you get that re- type of research and you see you know people driving around with hundreds of kids in the car or children leaning out of car, out of rooftop. What are the roof things called? The roof sunroofs. Sunroofs. Thank you very much. <laughs> the, the, you see them leaning out of sunroofs and, and 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 mostly at the weekends because you don't necessarily see it on the school run so much. But you do get this sort of sinking feeling that there's nothing that can be done about it. But there are lots of ideas there. So we'll definitely be passing them on to Thomas Edelman from Road Safety UAE. But Anthony Miles, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming in the studio. It's been great to have you here. Thank you very much. So Anthony is Managing Director of Bond. He is a branding and marketing expert uh, based here in the UAE. I asked Anthony how long he's been here. 15 years. Beats me. I've been here for a decade. And Neil says, uh, regarding the issue of car seats, I see many cars with fully tinted windows where you can't see from the outside whether the children inside are belted in properly. So how can the law be enforced when one set of drivers can clearly get away with that without facing any repercussions? Very interesting that you raised it there. Maria says, all three of mine are buckled up. More comments. Daniel says, just take a look around when you drive home. How many children are standing between the two front seats and they're not buckled in and how badly the distracted parents are driving. Interestingly, uh, another comment here from Matt says that actually, realistically, if you're, it's a double challenge because you could argue that a child not strapped in is a bigger distraction to those driving than one screaming blue murder in the back seat. But unfortunately, increasingly the likelihood of an accident. Uh, Kalpner says, with all due respect, if you own a smartphone, a smartphone, then you can figure out the car seats required. It's plain ignorance. These parents ought to be heavily filed. Sorry, heavily fined. Mona said some parents don't use car seats because kids at school bully each other about using a car seat. That is fascinating really interesting this person says there needs to be more visual communications on the sides of the roads as it all comes down to education if you go somewhere like bangladesh the roads are complete chaos and your mind learns through repetition so the more someone sees something every day driving they will then conform to it interesting so we think you know maybe adverts on the side of the road might be the answer We have been discussing those extraordinary statistics out of Road Safety UAE. They're a campaign group based here. And they found that a third of parents still aren't putting their children in proper car seats. And even more, a third of parents who do own the car seats still aren't using them. We've been asking you this morning whether or not you use car seats, whether or not you could be honest and explain if you don't use them, why it is. People are really sort of enthused about this topic. People have really strong opinions on it and it's been great to hear from so many of you. Uh, Shikar has just got in touch saying parents who drive without car seats or not even buckling their kids in need immediate visits from Child Protective Services. Tawab, who is from 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants, says, I think there are two key factors in low car seat usage. One is lack of knowledge of the risks associated with not using a car seat. Basically, he, it, he says it could be the difference between life and death or disability. And number two, enforcement, which in his view needs to be much more rigorous. Mona says some parents don't use car seats because kids at school bully each other about using them. I'd love to hear more on that. If there's anyone who's had experience of that, I'd really love to hear from you because I find that very interesting indeed. Matt here says I've lived here for 10 years and it's always concerns me about people not using car seats. And I often wondered whether it was a lack of confidence about not knowing how to set them up properly. 
Uh, this person said we've always owned a car seat and made it mandatory in our cars, but my in-laws don't think it's necessary, especially if they all want to squeeze into one car. They will leave the seats behind and this really frustrates me. You get a sense there of maybe there's a sort of generational uh, difference, which is which is very interesting indeed. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, welcome back to the programme. Georgia here with you till one. We will continue our conversation about car seats in the coming few minutes, but let's turn our attention now to adult learning because a new organisation is basing itself out of the UAE and it's got a mission to train doctors, nurses and paramedics to respond to medical emergencies and also to provide medical care in extreme environments. Now, I know it's hot out there, but we're not quite in an extreme environment here. So I'm really intrigued to know why uh, World Extreme Medicine are basing themselves here in the UAE. It's run by Mark Hannaford. He's the founder and CEO and he joins me in the studio now, Mark, thank you so much for coming in. Lovely to have you with us. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Now, tell me, what type of skills are you actually teaching? Because you're taking trained medics and you're upping the ante, aren't you? That's exactly right. So medics come to us with their clinical skills, but what we're teaching them to do is to work in, as you've mentioned, extreme locations. It's taking that medical skill and putting it outside of the hospital. And our special area, if you like, what we concentrate on is taking that medicine to disaster zones, humanitarian crises, to expeditions, into space, working with NASA, um, but also in a tactical session because there are lots of lessons to be learned from conflict medicine. We want to break down the silos between those different types of medicine. So actually the best practice gets shared between all of them. And then we're delivering that to medics who come to us who want to go and respond to humanitarian crises, disasters, they want to go and climb Everest. They want to go into space, perhaps. You know, so it's providing that training package, that community of learning for them to engage with. So what type of skills do they need? I've actually got a friend who works as a doctor for the RAF. So she's been into war zones. She's an anaesthetist. Anaesthetist. Yes, and she's one of those. And she, um, <laughs> and, and I remember she said that she really did learn a particular sense of uh, set of skills before she went and also while she was there. Because in a war zone, when you're treating people at pace and, and often people who are very badly wounded, it's a completely different style of work. It's very different. And of course, being outside of a hospital confronts you with a whole set of new challenges. And in general, you need to have those core medical skills. Those, in her case, those anaesthetic skills, those emergency medicine skills. But the opportunities for people are quite wide from that conflict type medicine to working on expeditions, as I've mentioned, but also working in a humanitarian setting in a, in a refugee camp, for instance. Those, you know, those skills are very different. But you, you need to have the, the confidence to deliver your speciality outside of a, of, a, of a hospital setting. What we teach a lot of is how to do that, but also team working, how to assess risk, how to keep your mental health in check. Do you know, and I think one of the big things we found that people, clinicians, whether they're doctors, paramedics or nurses, engaging with this type of medicine, return to their mainstream medical careers better equipped because they've learned a lot of those non-technical skills which say they can then use every single day of their clinical life so we also find that it's it helps them address the the issues of burnout in doctors nurses and paramedics you know given the nature of the work that's quite a common uh, you know theme symptom so this provides them with a really useful and worthwhile balance to their mainstream careers where they can take medicine, they can take it into, into um, worthwhile places, that's not too mm. trite to say, but into humanitarian settings or follow their desire to do extremes or go into space. You know, it's, it's that sort of balance of skills that also gives them a life-work balance and does address burnout, which is something yeah, we're quite I keen mean, about. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I suppose if you're teaching them, one of those key skills in an, in an emergency environment must be the ability to keep a cool head. And, and of course, that will spill over into your everyday life as well. Now, I think quite a lot of people might not know why the UAE is such a good place for you to set yourselves up, because I don't think everyone knows about the humanitarian city and the work that's done there. But 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 we really are a, a, the perfect place, I suppose, for, for an extreme medicine school, so to speak. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's amazing. Amazing here. We were we were blessed by having an invitation to reside here on a golden visa by the the Department of um, Tourism. 
and you know it's an amazing environment with so many different opportunities and and different cultures logistically it's so central to um where we need to be um and you know we've got a well, to be honest we've got a massive conference that we we run each year that at the moment we run in europe tom cruise uh, attended last year we had victor glover the the, the space Ax, uh, space dragon capsule pilot the first private uh, space vehicle to go to the International Space Station. Her dame Jane Goodall. Um, and we'd love to bring that here because it's such a, an amazing environment of innovation, of thinking forward. It's, you know, it's... And there were so many different sort of medical disciplines here that are, that, that are represented. It would be amazing to bring that conference to Dubai so that we could really share the concept of extreme medicine with the medical community and the non-medical community here because this encompasses medicine and expeditions and adventure and humanitarianism and taking using medicine as a power for good. Mm, yeah, I have to say, I, I was always very impressed by the work that's done out of um, the humanitarian city in the sense that so many, because we are only four hours from so many other places in the world, we do find that many of the the, the airlifts of aid are, you know, come from the UAE. Not necessarily. I mean, obviously, the UAE is a, a huge distributor of aid, but but also just as a base, it works. It works very well as well. It's great pleasure to have you here in the studio, Mark. Thank you very much indeed for your time. You've been listening to the voice of Mark. He's the founder and CEO of World Extreme Medicine. I wish you all the best with your school out here, uh, and let's call it a school, but you know, you're you're the college, I suppose, is more effective. Well, master's program is what we'd like to. That's watch. what we'd like to call it, and also with your future conference, should you bring out here i definitely come and watch tom cruise speak that's for sure uh, mark thanks so much for your time it's a thank pleasure thank you george a pleasure this is eye on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people yes welcome back to the program george's holly here with you for the next hour and we are hosting eye on education at the moment uh, which is our special sort of program it's our opportunity each week to take a really close look at some of the educational stories that are making headlines. And one of the big topics of conversation, as you can imagine, is COP28 and the different ways in which we are, I suppose, preparing our children for this global event that the UAE has the privilege of hosting in November. And one of the ways in which they are, the country is keen to sort of bring students in is through their Climate Ambassadors project. It's been launched by Expo City Dubai, which of course will be the location of the Climate Talks come November. It's called uh, the Climate Ambassadors Programme. It is a special initiative which invites high school pupils to step into the shoes of the climate negotiators uh, who will be attending COP28. The general gist is they take part in a simulation of a COP session by role-playing They basically become an ambassador for a selected country for the sort of day. It's it's a day trip basically out to Expo where they learn about the impact of climate change in that country and then work with their fellow ambassadors to find solutions by drafting and amending action plans. And then there is a negotiating process as well. Now, one of the schools that has signed up to the programme is the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. And a little earlier, I caught up with teacher Lily Jackson, who is the lead on eco-initiatives for the school. And she told me a little bit more about this programme. So CAP is the uh, Climate Change Ambassadors Programme, and it's an initiative by the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment. And it's basically in collaboration with Expo and the schools program. And it offers the kids and the students from different schools an experience firsthand to discuss these problems that we are facing on sustainability. And have the COP28 team opened it up to all schools or have you had to sort of work quite hard to get yourself on it? No, it's been open to all schools. You had to sign up. And it's been running the actual event since February. So we're going to be having our actual discussion in the end of June after all the children's exams. And what's the general gist of it? You know, what will actually happen? What will students do? So it offers students a closer look at the real life discussions and problems that COP, the Conference of Parties, will face. So the children then role play the UN representatives and have the opportunity to speak and discuss these issues. And it also just raises awareness for climate change, which is one of the most significant problems that we are facing. 
So the students are going to basically replicate what the adults are going to be doing when COP28 takes place. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So it's a really exciting and immersive role play experience. So the children have a program that they receive two weeks earlier. They can choose the country that they want to represent. They have the time to research and plan out what they want to say and discuss with other schools and children and just collaborate on different answers that they can find solutions for. I'm guessing that this is the slightly older children. You, you know, I'm thinking of my 10-year-old my and my 8-year-old. You might get that type of structured thinking out of my 10-year-old, but, but I don't think it would work for the younger children. <laughs> it is aimed at more secondary-based children, but there are so many things within our education schools now that provide that same question and answer opportunity and just learning experience. But this is more structured towards older children. Have you found that the children are ready to engage with the issues raised by climate change and global warming? Definitely. I was actually just discussing this with the Eco Ambassadors this morning. And I said, why is it more apparent today? Why is it more relevant? And they all said through social media, influences, influences, sorry, uh, media coverage, and just these programs that give the opportunity and space to collaborate and come together and have these real life experiences, it gets the children excited and encourages an early uh, responsibility and awareness and just empowers them because they are the next leaders of tomorrow. They really are. And it's such an important opportunity to be a part of. With all the news coverage of, of global warming, a lot of it is really depressing. Like I find it pretty depressing even as an adult. Do you find that the children are worried about it do you get a sense that there might be what some campaigners are calling climate anxiety Mm, I think that's a great question and I think it's not so much anxiety but it's just awareness and responsibility that their actions have implications and what they can achieve in the future is plausible it is achievable and we're just creating that platform and giving that platform for them to do so so I think it's more of awareness than anxiety what classes do they learn about climate change? I seem to remember, and I mean, this is this goes to show how long we've been grappling with this issue. I was probably 10, so that's ah, 30 years ago, a long time ago. And I learned about it in geography. And I remember our geography teacher was really quite passionate. And, and at the time, it was all about not using aerosols and, and things like that. And I just wonder how children learn now, whether you do it in geography in the same way or whether it has its own place in the curriculum. So in geography, definitely, and in topic-based projects, in science, MSc, PHSE, and within the arts as well, which is my predominant realm, it's really in every subject and is so much at the forefront that it just goes into every avenue that we have. That's interesting. You get a sense of it sort of seeping into every part of the curriculum because, of course, it is, and, and it sounds almost trite to say it, but it is the biggest issue of our time. Is, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we've got COP28 coming up and we've got these lovely opportunities tied up with Expo. Are there other things that you do within the school, other eco activities that you do within the school, sort of proactive? Mm. So we have our ambassadors program in school, our eco ambassadors. So each half term we meet, we monitor our energy, our water use. We have different activities themed within the curriculum. We have guest speakers come in. We've partnered with different companies such as Avani. So we've gone plastic free and that's our pledge from last year to complete. We're also actually within the arts going to be doing an exhibition in November with COP28. So we're going to be tying in climate change and the arts and just showcasing how much we can achieve and how much we can show through our children. Really interesting to hear there how Lily Jackson is encouraging her pupils to get involved with the climate change activism, uh, including that Climate Ambassadors programme. I'd love to hear how your schools are getting in on the action at COP28, in the build-up to COP28, I suppose. Uh, And if you'd like to get involved with that uh, project with Expo City Dubai, uh, if you're a teacher listening to this or or a parent who wants to nudge their school to get involved, I've just done the search 
search. All you need to do is go into Google and look for Climate Ambassadors Programme and it will show you the website straight away. Uh, They say on that site that registration and participation in the programme is free of charge for all schools, but places are limited and will be assigned on a first-come, first-served basis. So you need to get your bid in as quickly as possible if you want your school to be involved in that Climate Ambassadors Programme. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We are discussing how school pupils across the UAE are basically being invited to get involved ahead of the UN climate talks that are going to take place in November at Expo City Dubai. It's a special programme. It's called the Climate Ambassadors Programme. It's uh, The idea is that it invites high school students to step into the shoes of the climate negotiators. Basically, they have to role play and imagine what it would be like to be getting involved in those negotiations. Here are a few Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai pupils who are taking part in the programme. Hello, my name is Raphael and I'm a Year 7 at RGS. I'll be representing Jamaica at CAP. One of the issues that they are facing is the preservation of their coral reefs that are being damaged by overpollution and bycatch. I'm looking forward to discussing res- restoration and solutions with other students at CAP. Hi, I'm Sasha and I'm a pupil with RGS and I'm really looking forward to participating in CAP. The country that I'm going to represent is Belgium. Here are some problems in Belgium. Belgium has the seventh largest emission of CO2 in Europe. Temperatures in Belgium have, ri- have risen by no- 1.9 on average since 1890. I'm really thankful that Dubai and has presented me with so many opportunities to express and share my opinions on the issues that we are having, such as climate change. What is going on in Belgium that they've got the seventh highest emissions? Who knew? Really interesting there to see how each of those pupils are sort of taking, adopting the sort of worries and concerns of those individual countries. Now, obviously, those are quite young children, but the uh, CAP programme isn't just limited to primary age children. Back in March, uh, they the organisation sort of ran the first in a series of debates for their senior school pupils. And the level of debate really was extraordinarily high. Here to give us a flavour of that event are just some of the teens that took part. This has been a very, very fun experience, very educational. I've been in many debating competitions that were environmental, but after today, my perspective has been widened a lot on climate change and the other major challenges that act as a major threat to uh, all the countries uh, globally and uh, that we should further uh, implement solutions and look for possibilities in order to face those challenges and minimize them as much as possible. This this discussion was very productive today. I've received many insights and I hope to soon have another one. This COP or CAP can benefit me by helping me enhance my speaking skills, my researching skills and overall my brainstorming skills. And I think this is a great opportunity for anyone who wants to improve upon that or anyone who just wants to have fun, debate a little and brainstorm. This event was really, really inspiring. I got to know about climate change. I got to know about food insecurity. And it had made me feel the pain of other countries as well as what problems they have had. As well as I've got to know that just the small step that we could take all together as a society could change our world to a better one and have accessibility to food, to climate change, and as well as a better economically developed world. Really fab to hear there from some of the students that have taken part in that Climate Ambassadors programme at Expo City Dubai. Just a quick reminder, maybe if you're a teacher travelling home from uh, school at the moment or a parent who'd like to nudge their school into getting involved with the Climate Ambassadors programme, just Google it. That's what I did. Uh, I'd give you the web address, but it's just too long. Uh, It says that registration and participation is free for all schools, but places are limited and will be assigned on a first-come, first-served basis. So it might be worth getting yourself registered ASAP. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Okay, let's stay at Expo City.
figuratively for the meantime here on Ion Education on the agenda because this week the site unveiled its latest initiative to engage the public and particularly our children with those preparations for COP28. It's called the Connecting Minds Book Club and they launched it in partnership with the Emirates Literature Foundation and that was in a bid to highlight through reading issues where climate, sustainability and culture intersect. Now launching the programme this week was the Booker Prize winning author Ben Oakry, who actually unveiled two new books for adults and children, which are both focused on climate change. Now, producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with him to find out more, and she began by asking him why he'd decided to join the programme. I'm here in Dubai to, first of all, to launch two important books of mine in relation to climate activism and climate change. The first is a book called Every Leaf a Hallelujah, which is a book for children and adults. It's an environmental fable, really. It's a story about a young girl, seven years old, called Mangoshi, and how she sets about saving the forest near her village from these rather vicious tree cutters. But it's also a story of her induction, initiation, into the world of trees. That's really very important. She gets taken on a journey round the world, by this wise old baobab tree. And she gets to see all the great trees of the world, as well as some of the sad trees that have been cut down in the Amazon. She gets to meet them. She has a really full education. She gets gets involved in an act of of, uh, activism, saving her forest, and in the process saves her mother from dying by bringing home a special flower. So it's a very layered story, but also a very clear one. And the second book I'm initiating here is a, a book called Tiger Work, which is a book of all the essays, stories, poems, interviews, letters, all around climate change. It's, I've made it into a kind of a suite. It's a new kind of form. It's like, it's like a music album, or one of those themed double albums, like, like <laughs> Pink Floyd's The Wall or something like that. An or, epic. Or, yeah. The idea of sort of crossing into the mystical, the fable, that's something we see a lot in your work. But is the climate aspect new for you? Climate aspect's been there, but this is the first time in the last five years I've, I've, I've really begun to take it on in a very direct way because I've come to realise that you talk about climate and you're too indirect and people will miss it. But if you talk about climate and you're too direct, it puts people off. So it has to still be literature. It has to still be beautiful. It has to still be very carefully structured. It has to work in every sentence and every line. It still has to, it still has to have all the power of literature. But I'm now harnessing that power to a kind of climate activism. Why now, with tackling climate, have you also decided to concurrently release work for both children and adults was that a very deliberate decision when you set out to write these works or is it just the way that it's come about that they're coming out at the same time with the same theme no i think it was partly deliberate because the children and adult fable to be honest with you one loses faith a little bit in adults when it comes to climate activism because you know we are part of the problem sorry to say so and i i'm really sorry if um, people out there feel that i'm picking on them in any way that's not my intention it's just a really, it's really basic truth. We've known about this for at least 20, 25, 30 years. It was the right thing to be banging on about and to be banging the drum about because it concerns all of us. It's an inescapable problem. And now humanity can find a universal solution. And so one speaks to the young first because they get it. The young get it. You touched previously on that balance that we need to find between sort of optimism and, and fear. I've actually got a picture of one of your quotes that's on the Commonwealth Memorial Gate, which says, our future is greater than our past. Given the work that you're doing at the moment, do you still believe that? Do you trust in the next generation to get this right where our generation has gotten it wrong? Yes, it's very unfair. We're putting too big a load on this generation of young people to sort of turn this great ship of humanity around. But, you know, this is an everybody problem. This is an everybody solution. And so, does one have hope? Do I feel that the future is still possible for us? Yes, I do. But on the condition that we wake up to this moment, 
and that we all of us do what we can to scale back the direct and indirect destruction that we're wreaking on this gorgeous, unique, singular planet of ours. And you're optimistic that events like these around COP28 and around the talks that are coming later this year can can help generate that feeling of action? Yes, I do, because, you know, it's not by boring people to tears, but by making this issue part of the atmosphere you breathe. They, they use the phrase, we're raising awareness. I think it's more than just raising awareness. We now need to make climate change and the possibilities of climate change, what we can do to sort of stop this. We need to make that part of the air we breathe. We need to make it part of the conversation. We need to make it part of the ordinary phrases and the ordinary way we think. It's already getting there. You know, there's nobody now on this planet who can say they're not aware of what's going on, even if they disagree with it or think they can't do anything about it. Most people now know that we have a problem or a challenge. So events like this load up the air. (laughs) They load up our eardrums. They load up our hearts with more information about this till you can't escape it anymore. And then from now on, I think he now becomes corrective. And that's all that's needed. Powerful words there from the Booker Prize winning author Ben Oakry in conversation uh, with producer Jennifer Crichton. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Hello there, welcome back to the Agenda. Welcome back to Eye on Education. And we only have about eight minutes left, but it's going to be very valuable for eight minutes for anyone who's got their children here over the summer because Expo City has unveiled its special summer programme, complete with a host of children and family activities, all aimed at preventing that summer slide that you might have heard us talking about at the start of the programme. Apparently, we need to keep up the education going during the summer holidays so they uh, don't lose perspective. Um, It sounds exhausting, I have to say. Uh, But this is one way of doing it without too much angst because outdoor attractions such as the Al Wassel Dome Light Show and the Surreal Water Fountain, they'll be taking a summer break But that doesn't mean the site is going to fall quiet. Instead, the museum pavilions are going to be open later and there will be a series of daytime summer camps to keep children entertained. Let's find out more about the content of those uh, camps. I'm joined on the line now by Sumeya Al-Ali, who's Vice President of Government Partnerships, Sales, Marketing and Communications at Expo City Dubai. Sumeya, how are you? Thank you for joining me on the line this lunchtime this friday lunchtime how are you hello georgia i'm good thank you how are you i am very well indeed i'm very excited about these summer camps i'm hoping they're going to start early in the summer holidays so i can send my children what type of stuff will they be learning great so as you rightly mentioned summers can be hot like really hot but it doesn't mean that uh, summertime here are uh, is dull so uh, starting 15th of june to 15th of uh, september uh, all our pavilions including terra and aleph will be open from 12 uh, to 8 p.m to adjust with the summer uh, timings uh, the children playgrounds will also adjust to be open from 6 to 10 uh, in the evening um, the summer camps for kids will be uh, is returning this year again for the kids aged 5 to 11 years uh, from 10th of July to 18th of August. Okay, fantastic. I'm on your site now, expocitydubai.com forward slash summer camp. Uh, they look like you do a whole load of different types. Can you talk me through some of the different sure. skills that they'll be learning sure. if they come Sure. So the summer camps will be filled with uh, fun adventures, including um, uh, comic book creations, uh, water fun, uh, hands-on activities across uh, themes spanning sports, robotics, creativity, art, health and uh, wellness. Uh, The camps will run from Monday to Friday from uh, 9 in the morning to uh, 2.30 p.m., uh, of course, with options for early drop-off and late uh, pickups. And uh, as you can read, there are more information on the website. Yeah, I've actually, I've, I've, I've gone a bit quiet because I'm reading the PDF as we speak <laughs> uh, with the hope that it would work for the children. What's the cost? You are actually spending money, uh, I can see here. There are 165 yes. dirhams for a one-day ticket. 
Yes. Uh, and then it reduces if you sign up for more. It looks absolutely brilliant and a, and a very good use of the site over the summer. How has it been over the last few weeks? Have you found that you're getting a lot of visitors to the pavilions? It's actually been great. Uh, so as you know, we had uh, celebrated many uh, occasions on uh, on site. We've been having uh, great numbers across all the seven pavilions. As you rightly mentioned, the uh, our great Al-Wasl and the uh, Surreal are taking a break, but people can still come. Uh, they remain open for visitors, but the projections will take a break until uh, later uh, this year. So yeah, it's been great. Good news. Now, you're expecting a lot of new tenants to be moving into Expo over the summer. I think I'm allowed to say on the radio that my producer, Jen, is going to be one of them. Uh, She's moving with her family. Mm -hmm. How different do you expect the site to feel when it comes to September? Because there'll be this lull potentially over the summer and then loads of new residents move in. We're very excited. Uh, so uh, there are leading uh, local international uh, businesses moving uh, into site, including organizations and educational institutions. Uh, they said to establish offices at the Expo City by September, uh, meaning about 3,000 employees will be working from our site. So we're really excited as a, as a team to to have uh, the site um, uh, with uh, more, more and more people. Uh, examples for those, including your dear colleague, uh, is also uh, DP World, Emirates Airlines, uh, Siemens Energy, Siemens Industrial, uh, Terminus Group, NG and Gratia Consultancy. We really look forward to uh, welcome such a diverse uh, group of partners and uh, to support their growth at Expo City Dubai. Yeah, it's really exciting to see that site developing apace. I mean, we've been following the story here on Dubai I 103.8 all the way from back when the Falcon landed as the late, great Malcolm Taylor, who is the presenter of the Business Breakfast at the time, uh, announced that the country winning the right to host Expo 2020 Dubai. And then, of course, we've seen it through the permutations, through COVID, uh, and now in its new incarnation at the Expo City Dubai. So fantastic to hear about how you'll be developing that site over the summer and in the coming months. Samaya Al-Ali, their Vice President of Government Partnerships, Sales, Marketing and Communications for Expo City Dubai. Thank you so much for coming on the radio. And I'm still got one eye on the PDF of those children's uh, activities because they do look fantastic and it would be great to get the kids out there. There's just so much sort of undercover space and so many museums on site that you just know that they won't get bored. Uh, So I think that might be one for the summer months for my family. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.